0: You would have lesson. Why you stupid f look at you now?
1: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is another, I don't know if it's going to be exciting, uh, episode of the Remnant podcast, um, which is now in part the inspiration of one of the uh, main taxonomies of uh, Washington conservatism by Kristen Soltis Anderson. I just literally just I got off the plane. I ran through the airport like O.J. Simpson. For you uh, younger listeners, that doesn't mean I ran through the airport cutting people's throats. It means I ran through the airport jumping over luggage because uh, he used to be in ads for Hertz where he would like uh, sprint through the airport, leaping over people ca- pu- ca- pulling their luggage and whatnot. Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there, uh, except to demonstrate how unbelievably tired and frazzled I am. I'm here to record this episode in part because I can't do one tomorrow, and we, you know, we have to pay the bills, um, but also. I had um, sworn a blood oath that when we actually had a Supreme Court roundup episode to do um, that we would try to get Ilya Shapiro on Cato, a legal scholar, constitutional scholar, um, and one of the world's greatest Lombada dancers – not just to fulfill the Shapiro quota, but actually do some sort of SCOTUS stuff. And then we got news that the Kennedy thing, the Kennedy retirement happened. So, you know, it's madness in the streets. There are people running around, setting their hairs on fire. Uh It's just, it's chaos. But we got Ilya on by Skype and we're going to do some uh just rank legal punditry, some recap stuff. I am not up to speed because I just got back from Phoenix. Um and uh, I think it was Phoenix, and so I haven't even been able to read most of the stuff that's been going on, except to look at Twitter and and open the Ark of the Covenant, as it were. So anyway, I also want to say that uh, this week's episode of The Remnant is brought to us by Conversations with Crystal. We'll have more on that in a little bit, um, but for now, uh, welcome Ilya, and let's get this uh, let's get this uh, party started.
0: Uh, it's great to be back. I think if you're looking at Twitter, you have negative information.
1: <laughs> um, so. Uh, let's start with the, with the big news and maybe we can do some sort of, uh, roundup stuff on the back end. Um, so it's your birthday and because Crom is a generous God on certain occasions, he decided to have Kennedy announce his retirement. What, what, what was your first reaction? Were you surprised? I asked you about this the last time you were on and you gave no weight one way or the other rumors that he might retire. And uh, here we are.
0: Yeah, you know, I was at 50-50 uh, or 50 plus a peppercorn uh, uh, on that, it was more likely than not that he would retire. Uh, what's interesting, and I had forgotten this myself, is that it's actually unusual for a justice to announce retirement from the bench, meaning on that last sitting when they announced their very final case, which was this morning. The last time something like that happened was 1991 with Thurgood Marshall. Typically, they announce uh, later that week or later that summer or something, or of course they, they can die. But which they um, rarely announce from the bench, which, which they rarely announce at all. I mean, it's really <laughs> inconsiderate of people's schedules. Uh, so yeah, here I am like trying to do cleanup on the term. I have my associates and interns working to compile statistics and do our fancy analyses about how great a year it was for Cato. And it was great. We went, I think, 11 and three in the Cases in which we filed even better than last year and way better than our main competition, which is, of course, the U.S. government. And all of a sudden I get a call from CBS. The producer was like, hey, Kennedy's going to retire. I'm like, "Ah, oh, OK, let's go. I guess I'm not <laughs> watching any more of the World Cup that I just turned on to go watch Brazil. I thought, I, you know, my birthday Brazil. This morning, of course, I started my birthday, as most people do in Washington, by testifying before the Federal Election Commission. So that was going great. And I was following SCOTUS blog on my phone. No retirement announcement. And there was a big announcement in a case called Janice that we'll get to about the, the rights of public sector, uh, workers, uh, which went our way and kind of tracked Cato's brief. So I was really happy about all that stuff. Uh, and then yes, yeah, so for the last, uh, number of hours, I've just been trying to, uh, play ping pong with media queries that are coming in and, uh, and trying to protect this slot because I know how important it is to, uh, inform the, the listeners of, of your fine podcast.
1: That's right. That's right. So, and I appreciate that greatly because I did ask you at the last minute to do this in the first place and then this whole thing blew up. So what, you know, I know this is a weird question, but what is the most frequently asked question from all of these people? What, 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 what do the mainstream media people think you will contribute to the question about what does it mean that Kennedy retires? I mean, is there a commonality to the questions?
0: Yes, there are basically three major things. First, talk to us about Kennedy's legacy. What are the main areas of law where he's contributed to? And so I list off uh, abortion, affirmative action, First Amendment, uh, structural protections for liberty, gay gay rights and gay rights. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. yeah. those five, basically. And we can go into them if you want. Uh, Then there's the bucket about uh, the successor. So there's Trump's list. You know, will he go off list? Who do you think? What's the what's the scuttlebutt? Who would you want? You know, th- that sort of question. And then there's the political stuff. You know, what does this mean for Republicans, for Democrats? Uh, the midterms coming up. How does that play in? What about, uh, you know, the lingering resentment over Gorset? you know, th- that angle? So there's the legal, the political, and the, the, uh, the horse race or, or, or what yeah. have you. And then, then the libertarian media or, or, or kind of more intellectual media, I suppose, will say, well, was Kennedy really a libertarian? And what does that even mean? And, well, you know, was he an originalist? He clearly wasn't, but you know, talk to us about his methodology and, and and those sorts of things. Yeah. So, would
1: you? I I like the idea that there's this libertarian media out there. Like, <laughs> you go give a press conference to the libertarian press, and it's just this packed room of <laughs> people from like the 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 Rand Daily and, you know, <laughs> and the, Reason sends two
0: reporters. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the Rothbard Gazette. I mean, everyone's here. Um. I, well, let's sort of start backwards. I mean, I'm not sure. Anyone is like. I mean, it's a, does anyone? I mean, does anyone? Does anyone who doesn't? Does anyone who knows what libertarian is? Libertarianism is actually think that Kennedy was a real libertarian.
0: No, but it's kind of like the closest we've ever had, essentially. And he is the justice who's agreed with Kennedy the most, with with Cato the most. Not necessarily every year, and I haven't. I don't have the latest statistics for this year yet. Uh, but overall. You know, there are some years where Scalia was really with us. There were some years where Thomas was really with us. Roberts had a good year with us one year. Uh, but Kennedy just in all of kind of the big controversies that go five to four. Sometimes he's with the liberals. Sometimes he's with conservatives. There he draws a very libertarian line often, whether it's gun rights, gay rights, Shelby County, the big voting rights case, Citizens United today, Janice, the worker rights case that was controversial for the unions. We're the only organization that is with Kennedy on all of those kinds of uh, culture war issues, if, if you will. Now, there are big cases where I or, or libertarians disagree with Kennedy, notably Rach versus Gonzalez about federalism and growing pot in your backyard and why Congress can regulate that. Uh, or uh, Kilo, which a great movie just came out about uh, the, the the taking of private property in, in Connecticut to give it to Pfizer, cond- condemning private property to give to another private party, essentially, uh, where Kennedy was with the bad guys, uh, supporting the government uh, taking so those are the you know two big ones. But still, he's sort of the best that we've got from a result perspective. Certainly not, you know, he's not a natural rights theorist. He's not a textualist, originalist, that kind of thing. But however he got there, his his quote unquote equal dignity theory or what have you, uh, got us to a libertarian point uh, more than more than most, or more than right. Ours. I
1: mean, that that was going to be my follow up question was, I understand that as a matter of sort of uh scorekeeping he had a better lifetime batting average from a libertarian perspective but how he actually reached those decisions doesn't strike me as particularly no No, useful (laughs) or or, or, admirable for libertarians.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have a piece in uh, in Medium a couple of years ago called the once in a future swing vote, which was an update of a 2010 uh, law review article in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy called The Sweet Mystery of Anthony Kennedy, which tries to make some coherent sense of his jurisprudence. And he is coherent within issue areas. Sometimes the trouble is figuring out which issue area Uh, or jurisprudential area, he might think a case is. Like, for example, if you can convince him that your case involves, uh, a constitutional design feature that protects liberty, you're there. He's, he's with that. Uh, if on the other hand, he thinks that it's, uh, you know, a law that disparages some people somehow, uh, he's not gonna be with you, uh, uh, on that. He kind of had a, um, rather than a, a libertarian or a classical liberal kind of natural rights approach about where all endowed with our rights and, you know, what, what do these mean? How do we apply them against the government? It's more like in a civilized society, we, we owe each other certain civility and dignity, right? Civility is the word of the, of the month, I guess, that, uh, mm-hmm. we're debating whether we have enough civility or, or, or whatnot. Uh, and, uh, it seems like the reason why he voted the way he did in the gay rights cases wasn't because of the inherent natural rights of everyone, including gay people, but rather it's, it hurts our dignity as a society or it's kind of off-putting. We're not acting in a, in a very civilized manner if we're passing these laws that hurt these people uh, uh, in these ways. It's kind of a noblesse oblige kind of burgermeister ab- ab- approach to uh, how law is supposed to be. And in a civilized society, you simply don't pass bad laws that hurt people.
1: So all right, let's get to a little nitty-gritty here. Uh, if, um, if President Trump stuck th- – to his existing list, you know, the original list plus the amended names, um, would any of them in your estimation uh, not move the court rightward by replacing Kennedy?
0: No, no. I mean, there, there are certain cases that, that you know, I sure. would agree with him more than others or conservatives would agree with Kennedy more than one. It, it just depends. But but as a as a general, as a gross generalization, no. All of these people are uh originalists, textualists, um, whether you call them conservative, libertarian or, or whatever, whether they're of the judicial engagement or the judicial restraint school, whatever, yes, they are all they would all move the court to the right, meaning John Roberts uh will become the median justice. So the Roberts court will actually be the Roberts Court, not just because he's the chief, but he uh he will be the swing vote.
1: Right. And so I guess we should just get out of the way. You can delineate as you wish who are your who are the ones that you think are most – well, before we get to that, I'll let you think about that for a second. Uh, uh-huh. What are the – what do you think are the odds that Trump goes off – does not stick to the list?
0: Uh, zero. In fact, he already in his press conference with the, uh, I think, president or prime minister of, of Portugal today, uh, which was interesting. He got him talking about the importance of the Supreme Court, uh, you know, praised Kennedy, uh, and then said, that, you know, we're going to go from the list. Those are great judges. And, and he really doesn't have any incentive to go off list. Uh, because if he wanted to add someone that hadn't been on the list before, he had that opportunity when he made that latest amendment of, uh, of another five, whatever it was, three, four months ago. So at this point, there's, there's really, you know, he doesn't gain anything by appointing, by going real wacky and going judge Judy or Chris Christie or, or, uh, Rudy Giuliani or something that would hurt him with the, uh, the legal elites and the federal society and all that. Uh, And in terms of other more solid people, well, you know, what does that really gain him? He already has all this, uh, all these wonderful folks. So the way that I game this out is there are now 25 people on the list. I cross off the ones who are over 60 because it's a young man's game. You know, Gorsuch was 49. This is you know, we're, we're going to be looking at people in their 40s and 50s. There are two people who are still in their late 30s, so take them off, just a little, a little, a little too young there. Uh, and you take off another couple of Coloradans. After Gorsuch, you're not going to have another person from the same state. It's just Politically, that's the way things work. You're left with uh, 17 or 18 people. You look at who the finalists were last time around, the, 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 the sweepstakes that Gorsuch ultimately won. And those are the following people, at least according to news accounts. So it wasn't like a formal, like final shortlist, but Tom Hardiman apparently was the first runner up. He's a, a judge from, from Pennsylvania, third circuit judge. He's in his early fifties. Uh, I, I talked to him about him in, in my previous appearance on, on your podcast, uh, kind of a judge's judge, not a big grand theorizer, but definitely. Uh, comes out with uh, what originalist or textualists might might agree with most of the time. He's best known for uh, criminal justice uh, cases, although some uh, other kind. He had a, a stirring opinion in a Second Amendment case fairly recently. Anyway, he's definitely going to be up there. Trump seems to like him. He looks like a judge, what have you. Uh, Ray Kethledge is an appellate judge out of Michigan. Very well reputed. Uh, one of his uh, former clerks is a friend of mine. He's been pushing all these opinions on me. It's kind of like Samizdat. Have you read the latest? Have you read the latest <laughs> about Ray Kethledge? It's, uh, uh, no, solid judge. I, I respect him tremendously. Um, uh, Definitely going to be up there. Uh, Ray Groinder, another Ray, 8th Circuit appellate uh, federal judge from Missouri, same age. These are all in their early 50s. Groinder has a kind of a colorful history. He was shot by in – a, in a man who was trying to rob his family, I think, and he was shot and he recovered and uh, had a turbulent family life and, and when he was growing up and what have you. Interesting story. Uh, Amul Thapar, who for those counting at home is a person of color, is Indian-American. Um, and he is 49 years old. Um, he was elevated already from the district court in Kentucky to the Sixth Circuit. Very, uh, well regarded, uh, by the Federalist Society said as a, as a young up and comer. Big, uh, big friend of, uh, uh, of Mitch McConnell. Uh, and that's no small matter, uh, of course. Uh, and as I said, has already gone through one confirmation uh, process under this Congress. Very appealing personality. Good, good story there uh and don willett uh who is Woo-hoo! kind of a, a a twitter favorite although he's definitely toned that down since he was moved from the texas supreme court to the 5th circuit uh federal appellate court in in texas uh a very great guy probably the one of of these i know i know i think them them all are, or or maybe i've met a couple of, a couple but anyway friend of mine uh my personal favorite i'll just go right there and say it he he has very good opinions on economic liberty and structural protections for uh all sorts of uh of, of natural rights and uh and what have you. So I'd start with those, probably add Brett Kavanaugh, who was uh, a DC circuit judge in his in his early 50s uh was added in that last grouping of four or five that were added. Um uh was a a senior official in the Bush White House, uh then was nominated to the court. Has a couple of dings against him in terms of maybe being too clever by half. He uh ruled on the first Obamacare litigation by saying that the court didn't have jurisdiction, didn't say that Obamacare was constitutional or not, so the court didn't have jurisdiction, trying to kind of avoid that. There are another couple of cases where, uh, some people say, well, that's very smart, but, uh, kind of dodged making a hard choice or, or what have you, but well, very well reputed and connected. And I like him as well. You know, he, he writes brilliant, uh, academic dissents that, uh, are certainly going to when the D.C. Circuit flips again at, at some point is are going to start becoming uh, the majority. Uh, so those are kind of the I guess the six that I've listed that I would put. Uh, I, I have about seventy percent confidence that the the pick will come from those six. Uh, now note none of them are women. Uh, people have asked me about that given Trump's diversity issues or what have you. Uh, Trump himself probably doesn't care that much about it. Uh, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg were the justice being replaced, then I think we definitely would be talking more about women, uh, like Amy Coney Barrett, Seventh Circuit judge, who's in, I think she's just 46 years old, so she will have her shot, uh, if, if, if she's not considered now, uh, or Joan Larson, uh, also, uh, an appellate judge from, uh, from Michigan. All of these are former Supreme Court clerks, which is a, which is a new development, a fairly, fairly recent, uh, uh, development. But uh, anyway, th- those are some those are some good names. Another one that I personally like, probably not going to be considered. He's he's only 43 years old, about to turn 44. David Strass of the uh, of the Eighth Circuit in Minnesota, the first ever Jewish justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court before he joined the federal bench. So uh, there we go. And Mike Lee, I, I keep talking. I keep saying I'm going to I'm going to wrap up. But there's all these great names. Senator Mike Lee, <laughs> Uh, is in there? Uh, I don't know if Trump and, and his political advisors are going to want another special Senate election. This one would be in Utah, of course, but not just Mike Lee. His brother Tom Lee is a justice on the Utah Supreme Court, also very good. I mean, look, this this is, is a, Tom honestly, Lee. This, is the, is the brother on the list? Yes. Yes. They're both on the list. And and Tom Lee went to Chicago. So as a Chicago alum, that's a plus in my book. But anyway, uh, look, it's I'm not blowing the smoke up uh, anybody's uh, rear end. Uh, this is legitimately a terrific list. There are some that I like more than others because some are too judicially restrained, for example, or too law and order conservative versus the Scalia Gorsuch kind of look at uh, uh, even protections for criminal defendants as part of our civil liberties and and all that. Uh, but generally this is a, this is a solid list. I don't think you're going to find like a John Roberts type who, uh, is too, is so minimalist that would uphold an Obamacare or something, let alone, uh, someone, uh, a moderate, uh, like Kennedy or someone who moves left, uh, like Souter or Stevens. Um, see, there yeah. you go. You you didn't even have to pay attention to the news. I, I download, I did the whole brain dump right there of all this biography. And, and, uh,
1: I, I, I appreciate it. It's very, it's very, very useful. Um, so one of my favorite scenes in 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 uh, Scarface is where Al Pacino, Tony Montana is uh, asked to escort the assassin to murder this guy who's going to give a speech at the UN, and but the guy picks up his kids in the car, and Tony Montana has a strict rule about no kill, don't, not killing any kids. To make a long story short, uh, he ultimately ends up, Tony Montana ends up shooting the assassin in the face, and then saying, "You stupid, f- look at you now." Um, and i I, I bring this up to talk about the democrats getting rid of the filibuster (laughs) um uh they must be you know i mean how many of us warned the democrats don't do something that you may regret down the road you're not going to be in power forever right and now i mean there's there's unless the democrats take back the senate which we can talk about in a second um there is no chance that the republicans don't confirm somebody, right?
0: Well, this is given the timing, the, this is going to the denouement is before the midterms. right? So it's not even about whether the Democrats take the Senate. Uh,
1: yeah. Uh, but they could conceivably clog up the works past the election, couldn't they?
0: I, I don't see it. I mean, already Mitch McConnell announced that there's no August recess. So I don't know whether you know, he's ready to burn the midnight oil to burn off whatever uh, debate time and anything else the Democrats might want to do. They, there simply are no more parliamentary uh, tricks. They have, you know, certain hold times and certain debate times and whatnot. But look, we have, uh, it's now June, we have four months, three and a half months until the court starts up again. We have more than four months until the election. I, it's inconceivable uh, unless Trump appoints somebody whom Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, any combination of them, kind of the more moderate Republican senators uh, don't like. Uh, inconceivable that someone wouldn't be confirmed. And yes, uh, I, I recall as to your, you know, look at you now, um, <laughs> you dumb, f- <laughs> uh, Jack is going to have to b- these things out. To <laughs> say, <you
1: know. laughs> uh,
0: I, I, I remember at the time of the filibuster going down or the vacancy, the Gorsuch nomination, Ed Whalen, uh, who's the, you know, NRO legal, uh, bench memos, uh, uh leader there for y'all, uh, was tweeting, you know, don't throw me in the briar patch. Oh, Chuck Schumer, you have to filibuster this guy. Uh, he's, he's unacceptable. Please filibuster uh and they did uh which forced uh, as we know the thermonuclear option the nuclear option of course was Harry Reid himself when he got rid of the filibuster for lower court nominees but after the thermonuclear option uh yeah this this is reply, replacing Scalia was replacing like for like now you're definitely shifting the court to the right so the democrats uh, exactly they 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 were in a tough political spot because of course their base was protesting Chuck Schumer's brownstone in Brooklyn and all these sorts of things so there really wasn't a way out uh, they wanted blood but uh yeah they they have no leg to stand on now so, I mean, let me just
1: ask you, like a thirty thousand foot question, real quick. I look, I, I, I am, I am delighted by getting another conservative justice on the court. I think it's great. I, I, I think it's totally a good thing. As a just a process thing, do you think we would have been better off if, re, if Harry Reid had never done that in the first place? I mean, do you mind? Do you not mind uh, confirming justices with just 50, 50 votes plus one in the in, as a generic proposition?
0: Uh, I don't. I mean, Clarence Thomas was confirmed with 52. Here's the thing. It, you don't start with Harry Reid getting rid of the filibuster for lower courts. You start, you, you might not even start with Harry Reid for the first time ever filibustering lower court nominees, um, or j- any judges of any kind, uh, on an ideological basis, on a partisan basis in 2003. And of course, b- before that was, uh, was Thomas, the smearing of Thomas, and before that was, was Robert Bork. Um, this is all, um, you know, th- this political toxicity, is natural responses to the stakes being elevated the parties being uh, ideologically sorted and theories of law being sorted uh, uh, accordingly by, by party and so you're going to get very significant big things and if the supreme court is the ultimate arbiter of half a dozen of the nation's biggest uh, political uh, disputes every year then then yeah there's there's no way out of having this thing so fraught i mean the, there there are two things to save to save this situation and they're not easy and they're not process tactical let's all be civil uh Marcus of uh, of, of Queensbury rules or what have you one is federalism and sending this having the states do more of the stuff that the supreme court is now resolving instead about federal power and the other is uh uh the having going back in time 70 years and having the court uh be a court and and actually holding the elected officials feet to the fire and not letting the, the the growth of the federal government get the the way it has which has uh ended up with the problem too that is now Be solved by federalism. Yeah,
1: no, look, I mean, I, I agree. I write that column every few years about how, um, when people bemoan the politicized nature of the confirmation process, if, if you're going to make the Supreme Court behave like a legislative branch and the executive branch in a lot of respects, then of course the stakes. The nomination process is going to get so high that political, you know, the, the 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 political actors are going to get involved in the process. And the way to do it is to stop having the court do things the court's not supposed to do. So, I mean, I agree with that in in, in general, but at the same time, one, and I, I I don't really have a, pos, a position on this. I mean, I think if you had asked me in whatever it was, 2003, 2007, is Harry Reid being an idiot by doing this? I would have said yes, because I generally think that's describes most of the activity that harry Reid did um, but you know was i against removing the filibuster for was i against the nuclear option yeah and so i agree with you that you can point fingers about who started it and point to the new deal court and point at harry Reid and all that kind of stuff but do you think this process is going to is going to get worse as we go forward or well,
0: it, it already has uh, the use of blue slips uh, and the fight over that then cloture votes uh, i mean all these arcane parliamentary tactics are are getting blown through um, because the senate is becoming more like the house and more purely majoritarian look it's it's unfortunate but um i don't think that uh either side uh has to unilaterally disarm necessarily um it's uh it's a tough situation that we're in um and we have such a divided uh, polarized uh legislature congress um it's 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 really unavoidable i don't i don't i don't bemoan people uh you know fighting to the mattresses for core you know heartly felt beliefs
1: yeah besides once, once justice Piro gets in there and puts all the libs in internment camps um we can probably fix a lot of this stuff
0: i don't think we can do that anymore because koromatsu, one of the things you missed during your travel was koromatsu was overruled
1: uh, so i heard in- i say that, that's a good segue um <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, let's uh do a quick bit of um Supreme Court rounding up. um what do you think like, at least of the of the last week at least what do you think was the the biggest things that came down the pike?
0: Yeah, well, the only one I disagreed with was the internet sales tax case uh Wayfair that you can now states can now tax businesses that have no physical presence uh in the state uh, as long as they're you know transacting or or selling goods uh, in them this is a uh, Amazon is really happy that it doesn't have to compete with uh, smaller upstart entrepreneurial uh, uh, businesses now because Amazon already was paying sales tax uh, because it it's physically present in uh, in in most states. But otherwise, uh, working working our way backwards, I guess today was Janus versus the American Federal- Federation of uh, County and State Municipal Employees, five four decision to strike down uh, what are called agency fees or payments by non members of unions. Uh, in the public sector to those unions supposedly for collective bargaining but the problem is in the public sector even collective bargaining is a political activity because it has salience on budgets and education policy and transportation policy and and, and all the rest of it and you might not agree with uh, you know getting uh, seniority protections rather than uh, higher pay or or what have you so anyway first amendment uh, case overturning a 40 year old uh, uh, case really big deal and this is Kind of the, the double whammy that, that is making uh, uh, those on the left uh, uh, upset today. And I just got an email that they're apparently sending around pictures of puppies and kittens to feel better about uh, about today. Um, so anyway, that, that was a good thing in my view. Uh, yesterday was the travel ban. Uh, that is, the, the, the travel ban was allowed to remain by a vote of 5 to 4. Both the statutory and, and constitutional challenges failed. Uh, I agreed with that result. Um, you know, some libertarians uh, didn't. But the thing is, by the time you got to travel ban 3.0, because remember, we're not dealing with 1.0, the Stephen Miller special, the first uh, week of the Trump administration. This is all properly lawyered up, and courts defer to uh, the four corners of the law, the proclamation that was cited as national security reasons, uh, and what have you. And so uh, I think generally, I mean, it's, it's an unusual case. It's not often we have the intersection of uh, immigration law and national security, but uh, the the majority basically treated this as a normal legal case, and the dissenters, or at least two of them, Sotomayor and Ginsburg, treated this as an abnormal case because Trump. Um, so, um, let's back up
1: for a second and do the uh the the federal workers or the government workers yep. thing. First of all, how how sweeping is it? Is it as good news as as you could hope for, or 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 is the left exaggerating its impact? Because I I my understanding is a lot of states already basically have this rule as it is, right? And they haven't public sector unions haven't gone out of
0: business. Right. So there are twenty-two states that this affects. Uh including notably California, Illinois, New York, New Jersey, the 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 most populous uh the cash counts. Blue states. Right, right, right. Uh, And so uh you're right. Uh unions have not gone out of existence in the other twenty-eight states that don't have it. They've actually had to uh surprise, surprise, be more responsive to their members and look after their concerns and uh and actually engage in collective bargaining rather than taking positions on abortions and guns and and all this other stuff. Uh so this will change the dynamic. You know, who knows? Unions might try to go a more uh European method. I mean they're the you know, labor labor scholars are are, are kind of uh being creative about where the things might go. California is on the verge of, or maybe they already did pass a law, uh, anticipating this, essentially handing over to the union other power and still making it hard to, uh, to, to not pay these fees. You have to notify your union. You can't notify your employer. All sorts of things like this that, that maybe put small impediments. But at the end of the day, this, this does, for practical purposes, take away a lot of money from public sector union coffers. That's the biggest practical effect. Yeah,
1: so I mean, I, I saw a thing on 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 Twitter about uh people performing magic tricks on dogs, but that's not important right now. I also <laughs> saw this saw this thing on Twitter about um it was either Kagan or Sotomayor complaining in her their dissent that this is going to deprive unions of uh, a steady income, steady and reliable income stream, and I don't understand how that's responsive to the issue of whether or not it was a First Amendment violation. I mean, isn't that kind of a non sequitur or it,
0: well that's that's what we argued and that's what ultimately justice alito in his majority opinion when he was talking about uh why you know when, when you're looking at whether you're going to overturn precedent it's not simply whether the precedent is wrong but what kind of reliance interests are there people have structured their whole lives and businesses over this rule which might be wrong but maybe will would create more havoc in society to correct right. the old rule than you know and so he said look Depending on a revenue stream is not a reliance interest, okay? You know, structuring your business in a certain way, structuring your life in a certain way, moving to a different state—all of these things are are big reliance interests. But but simply, you know, liking the uh, the cash spigot—that's uh, that's that doesn't count.
1: Yeah, I remember um, uh, Judge Bork, who was at A when I first came here a long time ago, explaining one day this point about there are some things that may be unconstitutional, but they're so settled you really can't rip them up. And he was like, you know, look, there's a, he says, there's an argument that, you know, that paper money is unconstitutional. And he says, but we're not gonna, the court's not gonna touch that. And it was like, oh, okay, I get that, you know. Uh, Okay, but so now I want to do, we have to, we have to give, take some time out for our uh, sponsor this week, uh, which is Conversations with Crystal, uh, Bill Crystal's both sort of web video series, but also it's a podcast. That's how I listen to most of them. You know, and it was interesting. I was out in, as I said earlier, I was out in Phoenix this week or this week, yesterday for about 12 hours, and um, lots of people came up to me and wanted to talk to me about Charles and which is a, you know, still a little raw, a little difficult conversation for me to have. Um, I just On Sunday, I was at the funeral, and that was a pretty wrenching thing as well, but you know, everyone wanted to talk about him because they loved him so much and they admired him so much, and all of that and a bunch of people said to me that they had been watching the uh, Crowdhammer episode or montage or collection of episodes that they had had on on Bill's show, which I have not seen yet, but I'm going to watch the, or watch or listen to it this week. And it seems to me that like I could do the full conversations with crystals. A great podcast it is. They're great conversations. Um, they really go in depth on a lot of interesting things. They they take the time to sort of. Um, go deep on a lot of stuff. But uh, just given how much I've been hearing about the conversations that Bill had with Crowdhammer, where you actually get a much broader sense of just how unbelievably friggin' erudite and knowledgeable and 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 just brilliant Charles was. Um, if all of you've ever seen him on the special report panel or on Fox, those are great places to see him, but you don't get the sense of just how unbelievably well-rounded the guy was, which I wrote about recently in um, the Goldberg file, uh, then that's a great way to get an introduction into uh, conversations with Crystal. So you can watch any and all of Bill's conversations on the website, which is conversationswithbillcrystal.org, or you can just Google conversations with Crystal. It comes up very quickly. Um, You can subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of new releases every other week. And if you like, so if you like my podcast, or let me put it this way: If you like some of my podcasts, because sometimes uh, we go a different route, um, uh, if you like intelligent, serious conversation, then by all means, I really think you should give uh, Conversations with Crystal a try. You'll enjoy it, and uh, we thank them for uh, sponsoring this week's episode. Uh, but uh, okay, so let's you know, let's go back to this. Um, the uh, the, the final overturning overturning of Korematsu. Yes.
0: There, there's actually an interesting academic debate on Twitter, uh, academics on Twitter, that's the most you know, obscure thing. But anyway, about whether there, it actually was an overturning because, uh, of course, the question was not presented about whether it's legal to round up Americans and put them in camps. But anyway, the, the, the authoritative source, Westlaw, which is the research uh, uh, database that lawyers use to do legal research, has formally hung a red flag on Korematsu, which means at least for for those purposes it's it's considered to be overruled but never mind this was in the context of the uh of the travel ban case and uh justice sotomayor in her fiery dissent uh talks about how this is just like korematsu and robert says come on that was about rounding out rounding up us citizens and putting them in camps this is about the president's power over national security and who can come into the country oh and by the way just to be clear korematsu was is and shall forever be bad law so there
1: you go. So, uh, just as a side note, because I saw some of this debate on Twitter, is there? I mean, obviously, there's no formal legal binding power to like Westlaw saying something overturns something, right? But does it yeah. have that sort of creeping cultural effect, right? I mean, well, because it's, all it's, these it's... clerks are going to look it up, all these law <laughs> are going to look it
0: up and see that it's it's literally an academic question i i don't know that any uh uh court or lawyer has cited Koromatsu positively in the last half century um so it's not like oh all of a sudden oh i was i was structuring my whole case around it now i can't uh no it, it's just no 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 uh, i i know that but that's
1: not my question though i i i i i get that my point is is like when westlaw says that this decision has abrogated this other decision, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously there's nothing in actual law that says West law is the entity that we've designated to determine that one case is abrogated another case. Right. Yep. I mean, yep. so, but does it have that kind of cultural power anyway? I mean, if, if Westlaw says that a case has, if case X has negated case Y does, does it have any sort of, ripple effect on legal culture and on legal thinking? I'm just kind of curious about this because I saw maybe it was even you on Twitter saying, oh, well, this issue is settled and it kind of reminds me of my favorite scene from Miracle on 34th Street where because the post office delivered mail to this guy who said he was Chris Kringle, everyone was like, well, he must be because they all you know, the federal guy, the post office recognizes this guy as Santa Claus Yeah, does, was what does Westlaw have that kind of like cultural oomph in the legal community, that that the, the, their say so means something beyond just another any other opinion.
0: You know, I, I can't recall this question ever coming up before, so I don't know how to answer it because Westlaw labels a lot of things with a yellow flag, which basically means, and there's d- different ways they describe it. One of which may, may literally be cast shades on, uh, cast shade on, uh, another opinion. Uh, So there's a lot of yellow flag stuff, and it typically doesn't turn to red unless the court explicitly says, and therefore we overrule whatever, whether it's the Supreme Court or a lower court overturning its own opinion, what what have you. So uh, I, I mean, literally, this this is an academic question about an academic question. So uh, yeah, sorry, I think it's it's kind of,
1: I think it's just kind of fascinating that like, (laughs)
0: you know, because Westlaw says so. Um, anyway. Well, John um, Elwood also says so, and he 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 writes the uh the the realist uh the the weekly realist watch at Scotus Blog, and and he's pretty sharp. So so there you go.
1: So anyway, uh, so you you agreed with the opinion? Uh,
0: the travel ban one, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm sure you're against the travel ban. Yes. But. Some things can be I, – I policies can be bad but still be constitutional.
0: Exactly. I love opportunities to show where my uh, policy and legal views diverge and that's certainly one of them. Right, right.
1: I mean I always try to beat the interns over the head with this point that some things can be bad and constitutional and some things can be good and unconstitutional. And If you can't recognize that, you probably shouldn't go into law or be on the Supreme Court. All right, I know you're crazy busy and I got some house cleaning stuff. That I want to get to, but is there any other like what is the big thing that the the public and since I've missed? Yeah, yeah. What's the big thing that people have missed in in these cases this last week or over the Supreme Court term in general?
0: Yeah, a a lot of big First Amendment wins, whether about wearing political paraphernalia at the polling place, this worker case, the uh, the state can't compel uh, crisis pregnancy centers, pro-life pregnancy centers to talk about. uh, Here's how you can get your free abortions from California. The court punted on other big issues, whether partisan gerrymandering or Masterpiece Cake Shop, whether the the uh, the baker can decline to to make a cake for the the gay wedding. Kind of, he won. The baker won, but only because the Colorado Civil Rights Commission itself had an anti-religious bias. Uh, and, uh, uh,
1: where, and, and and on, I think we covered this last time, but on your libertarian scorecard, you think the baker should be able to decline?
0: Yes, as yeah. a as a freedom of speech issue. Even right. regardless of whether his reason is religious or, or or otherwise, one interesting statistic is I think there were something like nineteen five to four decisions this year, which is not unusual it 's about uh, uh, just under a third or a third that's not, not within within the normal realm. Uh, not a single one of them had Kennedy joining the Liberals to make up the five majority that is rare it 's not that every other one was the conservatives. I think it was like ten or eleven of the nineteen were conservatives and the other were kind of heterodox coalitions, but not a single time did Kennedy join. With the liberals to make a five-four uh, decision, and that's why, uh, again, why a lot of progressive legal commentators uh, are sour on Kennedy now, especially because this particular term, uh, he was not their friend.
1: Okay, so just I want to be on record. Uh, I think that you're wrong about not knowing. You, I mean, you can, I could be absolutely one hundred percent right on the logic, on the facts, and all the rest. But I still suspect that the Democrats are going to lose their friggin' minds. And figure out a way to drag out this process. I don't know if it's going to be uh, Kamala Harris setting fire to herself like a Buddhist monk in in Vietnam War or what, but there's going to be something that 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 tries to monkey wrench this in the Senate. I don't know what well, it is. Of course,
0: of course, they're going to try. Uh, I'm not aware of any you know procedural uh, hurdles. They're certainly going to make a, a media firestorm and and all the rest of it, but, uh, uh, so, I mean, are, are you, you know, should we make a, a gentleman's bet on this about whether, uh, So you think be... right, so
1: you think they're the first absolutely 100% sure that the, the next justice, that Kennedy's replacement will be on the court before the midterms.
0: Uh, yes. For okay. the start of the new Supreme court term.
1: Okay. I will, I have no idea how I, this is purely a gut instinct and you may be a hundred percent right that it's literally impossible for the Democrats to prevent it. But, I still feel like the Democrats will prevent it, and um, and we'll we'll, we'll see. Um, but uh, what should we bet? A, a a reasonably priced bottle of liquor um, of the other's choice. Sounds good. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thank you for doing this, Ilya. All
0: right, my pleasure. All
1: right, man. I'll talk to you soon, and we'll definitely have you back soon enough. Bye. All bye. right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay, I'd say Ilya has left the building, but I'm sure he's still in his building. We had to do this by Skype. I apologize if there were some uh, distortions. I still don't like doing this podcast over Skype for precisely that reason. Uh, They had quite a catastrophic attempt at doing this over the commentary podcast last week, and they ended up actually pulling the podcast down, in part because I had texted Pod and said, Dude, the audio quality on that was really bad, and he freaked out. I said, I don't think you need to take it down, but he did anyway. Um,
2: Is it true that they're trying to create some sort of episode 11 mythology about that podcast now? They might be. I mean, that's the thing is that they're so
1: unoriginal in how they try to sort of talk about their podcasts. And they, you know, Pod keeps trying to do this, you know, it's, it's very Trumpian, right? You know, so Trump. Originally, the the fake news thing was a was stemmed from a criticism of Trump that there was all this fake news that helped promote Trump's candidacy, and Trump flipped it and said, "No, the fake news is really the New York Times and the Washington Post." And now most people associate the term with 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 sort of Trump's usage of it rather than its original meaning. Pod has been doing a very similar thing where he keeps trying to say, "I have." You know, Jonah has this niche podcast. Jonah's podcast is quaint. Jonah's podcast is cute, which is, you know, which has been my sort of rhetorical trope for a while now. Um, it's kind of sad They should probably get their own material. And I can tell you as having actually listened to that podcast, um, which I thought was fine, you know, it was good. I learned some things, I guess. I can't really remember what. Uh, I'm sure it's fine. It was, it was fine. But it was nothing like episode 11. I mean, I mean, just uh, there, there was no carnage. There were no atheists all of a sudden, you know, praying to God for it to end. I mean, it was just it was nothing like what, what happened in our, in our episode eleven. And
2: um, no excerpts of "Carnival of Light," the lost Beatles song that Paul and Ringo won't release, except exact- on episode eleven.
1: And and and, and like that Wu Tang album, that that uh, scumbag Wall Street <laughs> yeah, guy, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, but. Anyway, I apologize if there were problems with the audio on the Skype. Um, um, I also apologize if I missed asking any scintillating questions about all this. I've literally just been on planes non-friggin' stop or doing, dealing with other things. And so I kind of I, – I haven't felt this at sea on the punditry stuff in quite a while. And on that note, Jack, did I miss anything or what did you think of that conversation with Ilya? Any thoughts?
2: Yes, there is one quite specific thing you missed. Um, Your National Review colleague, Michael Brennan Doherty, argued a couple months ago, I think, that Anthony Kennedy, I think the exact headline he used was, Anthony Kennedy cannot be allowed to die, which you can paraphrase as Anthony Kennedy should never retire, I guess. But he's retired. And uh, Michael's argument was that Anthony Kennedy's sort of Semi unpredictable jurisprudence, dishing out roughly equal wins to right and left, uh, was basically keeping the Supreme Court mostly seen as a fair or roughly impartial institution, despite all of the institutional importance it's assumed. And now that, he, well, in, in his argument, if he ever leaves, but now in here in the present, we can say now that he is leaving it's possible and likely that the future partisan rancor surrounding the court will just ratchet up another notch. So it's possible that someone will do a um, Burning Monk-style procedural maneuver in the Senate to make sure that uh, whoever Trump's selection for the next Supreme Court justice is does not get confirmed. So I was disappointed that you did not discuss that. So I bring it up now because I want to know what you think about that.
1: Um, you know, it's an interesting point. Um, you know, it's funny, like Gary Rosen, I think it's Gary Rosen, Jeff, no, Jeffrey Rosen, Jeffrey Rosen. He, he wrote a a book, I don't know, 10 years ago or so calling the, um, talking about the Supreme Court is the most democratic branch because it kind of, uh, would arrive at these positions that reflected the position of the polls. And he thought this was a great thing. And back then the argument was that Sandra Day O'Connor played that role. And, you know, and everyone was freaking out about Kennedy becoming the swing vote instead of, instead of Sandy. I do think it's, things are going to get worse with regard to debates over the Supreme Court, but that's also sort of baked in no matter what, because everything's getting worse in terms of debates about governance these days. <laughs> um, that and, seems like uh, a cop
2: out to, to me, but whatever. Proceed. Yeah, no, look, I,
1: I, I do, I do think, I think Michael's point is, is, is correct that if you actually have a solid. Five members, you know, major truly conservative majority on the bench. I think that is going to create one of these inflection moments for the American left. You know, this has been my argument about the history of progressivism for years. I have a couple, at least a couple, big long blog posts about this in the corner over the years uh, about how the way progressivism has always worked in America. I shouldn't say always for the last hundred or so years is that. They tend to argue um, that uh, for wherever the field is open, right. So when they want they want whatever branch of government or whatever means of implementing policy um, to be trans, you know, to be to be the the dominant one of whichever one they control, right. So Woodrow Wilson, when he was first writing his political science garbage, was talking about how congress needed to be supreme needed to make all the decisions made it needed to be really guiding
2: the country in part because he imagined
1: himself being in congress and specifically
2: the speaker of the house he imagined as the sort of leadership um clay in the hands of a consummate leader role that he'd later ascribed to the presidency that's right right
1: and so um and so progressives kind of agreed with him or had that point of view when Wilson was writing that, and then, and then when Wilson becomes president, all of a sudden the presidency has to be sort of imperial, and then convenient, uh, uh, yeah. And so then, but you can follow this if you just ask a question about. And so like people say, well, you know, you say all this bad stuff about progressives, but you know they were for all of these things. They were for they were for any mechanism, any reform that they thought would enhance their power, and so they were for judicial supremacy when the the seat of power of progressivism was on the supreme court they were for an imperial presidency when you had wilson and fdr they went to ground and thought no it should really be the bureaucracy when they had control of the bureaucracy um, and it they go the arguments almost always go wherever power goes and you know and, and this is one of these points that you know gets at some sort of larger issues about that i was actually that i was talking with lucas thompson last week about but for most of my life and most, and for the life of basically everybody listening to this podcast, the main difference between the arguments of progressives and the arguments among conservatives was that among progressives, the question was almost uniformly about how to get power, how to use power, how to maintain power. Right. And the, while the arguments among conservatives was how, how, uh, where it was philosophical, essentially, right? You know, uh, And so the example I've written about a bunch of times that I always thought was the, so perfectly revealing was when uh, Peter Berkowitz at the Hoover Institution put together uh, two sort of – a two-volume series of books where one book was all about uh, – I think it was called Varieties of Conservatism in America and the other one was Varieties of Progressivism in America – and I remember talking to him about this and he was as surprised by this as I was when I noticed it, which is that the conservative book had chapters from, you know, a lot of likely suspects on the right about on from you know the social conservative side, the libertarian side, the neocon side, the economic side, you know, whatever it was, you know, these different five, six different kinds of factions within the right about how their version of economic or their version of policy and politics was the one that should define conservatism or that was superior to the others. And it was basically an argument about where our dogma lies. And, the, and it was amazing. The essays for progressivism were all about, you know, how to win back the White House um, from, you know, with an emphasis on empowering the labor movement or for identity politics or whatever. The orientation towards politics was much more about power for the left than for the right. And, you know, one of the things that I've been really noodling about that Luke Luke Thompson talked about last week was that that's over for the right. And now the right is coalitional and the left is ideational or ideological. I'm not 100 percent ready to sort of agree with that, but I definitely think that that's where the change is and that's where the conversation has sort of gone on the right. The right talks a lot more about power and how to use power and how to keep power and how to fight and yada, yada, yada. And the left is struggling to figure out how to turn their sort of – turn intersectionality, as it were, into an actual governing ideology for the left. And that's that's kind of a new thing in at least my lifetime.
2: Hmm. So what do you make – I imagine that in the wake of another Supreme Court vacancy, while there's a Republican president and Republican majorities in both chambers of Congress, that the – ironic formulation of Butt Gorsuch, or Butt Gorsuch used ironically, is a little weaker, or at least that's what people are probably shouting at you on Twitter. What, do you, what is your response to such Twitter shouters?
1: Well, it's funny. Uh, I don't know if it was Adam Baldwin retweeting Nick Searcy, or Nick Searcy retweeting Adam Baldwin. I just saw this thing when I was racing into the car on the way back from the airport about how... I think it was Nick Cersei saying, you know, I had friends who were really agonizing about voting for Trump, but, you know, it was the Supreme Court thing that made it worthwhile and blah, 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 and, and sort of this gloating thing about, say, because of the second Supreme Court justice, that proves that people were right to vote for Donald Trump. And um, I don't know how many times or how many different ways I got to say this, but that's fine. If that's your argument for voting for Donald Trump, which was now two years ago, Okay. That's fine. I you know, I say in the book I've said a million times that if my vote came down today, came to, if, the, if if the election came down to me in 2016, I would have voted for Donald Trump. or I certainly would not have voted for Hillary Clinton, I probably would have voted for Donald Trump. Um I have no problem with that. Would I and I to this day I have no problem with that. I have no problem with people who want to talk about I mean, I mean I'll have my disagreements, but if you want to talk about how, you know, transactionally it was worth voting for the guy um, because look at what we've got with tax cuts or another Supreme Court justice or this, that, or the other thing. That's all fine if that's your argument. What I – you know, and putting aside the fact that it's so bizarre to me how many people it's, – it's like so many people are just plagued with guilt or insecurity or a demand that I get in the pool too that they keep wanting to talk about whether or not 2016 was justified. I could not give a rat's ass about that conversation anymore. And I'm fascinated by people who can't let go of it. You know, that that happened in the past. I've never never in my life have we ever judged a sitting president two years into his term about whether or not what he or uh, he was doing was better or worse than what the Democrat would have done had they been elected. And yet that is this bizarre obsession by a lot of people. I wish it was bizarre for some people, but it's clear that there's other things going on there. But what bothers me and what what vexes me about this is that that's not the day-to-day conversation, right? This is a conversation that, this comes up when, when good things happen, like we get another Supreme Court justice or, you know, right to try passes in Congress. When good stuff happens, people say, aha, see, don't you regret that you were such a pain in the ass to me and made me feel so guilty in 2016? And I get that why people want to have that conversation. But my point is none of that requires me to say that Donald Trump is the world's greatest negotiator. He's the best deal maker that we've ever seen. No, none of that requires me to, in effect, lie about the guy in front of us. And yet the, the impulse is, it's somehow it's this jujitsu BS where we, you, people go back to this 2016 thing and then. Go about their day, heaping praise on Donald Trump, giving him credit for bringing peace to North Korea, giving him credit. You know, Conrad Black uh, has this, you know, a, you know, swipe at me from last week that I finally just read all the way through on the plane today, and it's—he's a colleague. I want to—I don't want to be intemperate, but he essentially accuses me of of lying, um, among other things. And he praises Donald Trump for things he hasn't done. He gives – he ascribes attitudes and attributes to him that are just simply not in evidence. And you hear this all of the time from some of my colleagues at Fox News and elsewhere as if – because you, they were right by, on their terms to vote for Donald Trump in 2016. That therefore justifies all of the purple prose and insane sycophantic praise that you hear from people on a day-to-day basis it doesn't, you know, you can say if, if you want to if you want to ground your support Donald Trump today on this transactional argument that he brings us better wins, that he's doing thing, that things are getting done on his watch, that's fine. But don't start talk, talking to me about how brilliant and how genius he is or what a, what good character he has. Donald Trump is a scummy person who has a, an exceedingly an obvious bad character. He's a person of bad character. And even if he somehow manages to clone Robert Bork and put him on the Supreme Court, that will not change that fact. And the idea that somehow it's wrong for me to point that out, or it becomes less true that he's a scummy dude because he, we have some policy wins, is a complete and total non-sec order. And yet you hear, this all, it's, you hear this sort of bait-and-switch argument all the time. I say he's a bad dude, and people say, yeah, but look, he's delivering all these wins. Okay, that's non-responsive, Right. The things that he's doing rhetorically, the things that he's doing to ruin the brand of the, of the Republican Party among young people and young voters have nothing to do with these wins. And so, yeah, look, I'm glad I'm glad we're getting another Supreme Court justice. I'm also glad that, you know, uh, Steve Bannon, who is too obtuse to know whether the <laughs> go blind, couldn't actually chase Mitch McConnell off the public stage because he's the guy who's delivering a lot of these judicial appointments. And so by all means, celebrate the fact that we're having these accomplishments. But don't tell me that changes the obvious nature of the guy who's in the Oval Office or that somehow it requires me to reevaluate my judgments of the man and his actual abilities because he's not delivering a lot of the wins that people are claiming he's delivering. He's just simply – Delivering the a lot of the wins he's delivering are wins that we would have gotten with any Republican president, and some of the wins he's delivering are non-existent entirely. You know, we, we have not solved the North Korea crisis, and yet you you hear constantly from the sort of amen corner that he's delivered peace in our time and all of these kinds of things, and it's just just simply not true, and it doesn't become true even if he has a good Supreme Court appointment.
2: <sighs> okay, sorry,
1: are you done? I'm done. I apologize about that. It's just—I I hear from a lot of annoying people, and I'm—I'm I'm tired.
2: But There's, so, am I correct in inferring that when you were like first becoming a pundit, you made a lot of Simpsons references and sort of main, helped mainstream that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the Simpsons—Simpsons Simpsons popularity does not have a lot to
1: do with me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean,
2: <laughs> like mainstreaming, making Simpsons references uh, in political argument or like when you're yeah, talking about something politically. I, I, if you were
1: to make a list of people who like who sort of did that earliest and most prominently i, I think i'd be pretty high on the list there are an enormous number of people who thought that i coined the phrase is cheese eating surrender monkeys even though i consistently always gave the simpsons credit for it but i helped popularize it for a long time uh but yeah nope i'm one of those guys why do you ask
2: i i bring this up because there's a great uh, moment from Spongebob, which is my generation's Simpsons uh, in which Patrick Starr, one of the main characters, tells Spongebob that you'll never be happy until you get this thing off your chest and it's assumed that Spongebob is about to just Patrick is encouraging Spongebob to deliver a rant of the sort that you just did but instead, the camera then pans to SpongeBob's chest, and there's like some kind of <laughs> tiny squid-like thing just sucking on it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then SpongeBob looks at it and tears it off of him and, and throws it away and says, "You're right, Patrick." And then gives that rant that you, you would have expected him to. So, um, so um, I'm I'm I, trying I think... to mainstream SpongeBob references for uh, political commentary of my generation. So there's the uh, first volley.
1: Okay, well, that's that's good to know because, like, I've actually watched my share of Spongebob because my daughter loves it, and I, I saw the Spongebob movie in the theater. Um, the 2015 I
2: one? Guess,
1: I guess so, yeah. Yeah, so,
2: there was one in 2004 as well.
1: I'm, I wouldn't have seen that in the theater because my daughter was one at the time, and that would have been kind of creepy if I went by myself. So is this the kind of cutting-edge, edgy cultural commentary that we can expect on uh, on apparently your new podcast, which I have not listened to yet?
2: Yes. Uh, well, sort of. Look, The Young Americans, which is a new ricochet podcast that they're letting me play with uh, for a couple of episodes to see if it ends up actually being worth their time, is we're not going to be pundits, because nobody cares what young people have to say, really. Some, some people might pretend, but th- what we're trying to do is offer the only thing that we have expertise in at the time being, which is the perspective of young people on sort of social and cultural issues that they themselves are experiencing. So for the first episode, which you should all listen to, we discussed the modern trend of millennials like going to college, and then being socialized and educated there. And then the colleges being these sort of Factories that send out their graduates to one of a dozen or so major metropolitan areas, and then millennials leave their hometowns and cut themselves off from their past lives and contribute to brain drain. And whether that's a good thing or an inevitable thing or a bad thing. Um, so and things where like do you, that. where do you come down on that question? Um, it makes me... I. I am I have very mixed feelings. I should... You'd think I'd be in favor of it because I'm an example of it. Uh, I came here after college. I'm, I've left my family behind, uh, my hometown. But I still feel sort of ancestrally connected to my Midwestern roots. Every time I see a stalk of corn on TV, I just flash back to my youth, even though I wasn't born on a farm or anything. <laughs> but, no, it's... It's a tiff, it's a tough issue because the economy is what it is. The, there are trends moving in certain directions, and I don't know what can, and what can we do against them. Our, don't material conditions just determine our actions, like Marx said. So that sort of thing.
1: So it's it's funny you say that because whenever I see like I don't know a homeless dude defecating in the street or someone trying to sell me crack, it makes me incredibly nostalgic for. Uh, my hometown of new york city in the 1970s <laughs> and 1980s and it really makes it, it like a tear to my eye it's like ah oh, it's just you know play the walton's theme for me because <laughs> that's, that's what my childhood was like well i'm glad that you're experimenting with the podcast thing i Are gotta you, say
2: you created a monster yeah, in a way yeah I'm, I'm i'm
1: i i didn't say i was ecstatic <laughs> but um, but by all means you know you know you got to leave the nest at some point i mean which is kind of hard to do when you're handcuffed to the radiator but um I'm, not for lack of trying um but you know uh good luck with it if you ever you know if you if you ever need a special sort of cameo appearance by me you know well good luck <laughs>
2: yeah i was gonna say that's that's a little too generous but uh Plus, you're also kind of old no offense
1: no, I am old. So I mean, like you could have a regular feature of ask an old guy, but uh,
2: but you're also not old enough uh, to be like a like a truly old guy where it would be no, that's sort of true. Interesting that's to be like you're just sort of a guy in terms of your age. And In, in yeah, many yeah. other respects, you're you're uh, not only a handsome man but a powerful man. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so uh, there's other things I could rant about, but we got to wrap this thing up. I want to thank everybody who came. to Phoenix, and I had it confirmed because this is a huge peeve of mine, right? You constantly hear people say, but it's a dry heat about how hot it is out there. And I asked a bunch of different people about this. It is no longer true because I was – this was my impression like 10 years ago when I first started going back to Phoenix. Phoenix, because it's this giant heat sink and it's full of asphalt and pavement and and gardens and all that kind of stuff, it no longer – has the low humidity that the surrounding areas have. And it's just this heat island. And it has humidity now and this unbelievable friggin' heat. And it is just an awful place to be in late June. I mean, people are nice. I actually like Phoenix and Scottsdale a lot. I like Arizona a lot. But, man, was it just physically unpleasant to be outside. Um, are you
2: saying we've effectively terraformed Phoenix?
1: We have, yes, yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. and So it's not as humid as D.C., you know, which is basically like, um, you know, in the and starting in July, it's basically like the sweatpant fog of a fat man. It's so <laughs> disgusting
2: here. But, I can't wait for it. It's, it's um, so great. Walking outside and just being knocked over by the thick, hot air.
1: Yeah, it's no, sick. it's like a St. Bernard is just breathing on you. <laughs> um, and um, – but – When you add the fact, like I think I got up to 110 while I was there, and you add in like 50% humidity, and it's just friggin' miserable. But anyway, we don't have to talk more about the weather. At some point, I want to do an episode about the Enlightenment. I have a piece in the current issue of National Review. Maybe – I don't know if it's out from behind the paywall or anything, but uh, we should probably put that in the show notes and we can talk about that another time. But speaking of the paywall for National Review, if – you joined NR Plus, dear listeners, there would be no such thing. Huh. We like to say that NR Plus is a lot more than a digital subscription, and it truly is. I, got to, I hate this copy. I like NR Plus, but I really don't like this copy anymore. Anyway, I will read you some of this copy with some editorial comment added in. Just like a Bas- Trump speech. Yeah, that's right. Like you know, when he looks up from the teleprompter and just goes, so important. So important. And who um, wrote this anyway? <laughs> um, when you become an NR Plus member, you, of course, get unlimited access to the National Review digital magazine. That means you don't get the paywall when you want to read National Review magazine on your computer or mobile device. You get total access to the latest issue and to all of the issues in our 10-year archive. But NR Plus is is more than a digital subscription. It really is a membership. When you join NR+, you get access to our members-only Facebook group. That's a place where you and other NR+, members can share your thoughts with all of us editors and writers over at National Review. It's a great perk for everyone involved. You get to speak your mind to all of us at National Review, and we get important feedback from our most dedicated readers. It is a great deal. We also started conference calls featuring NR writers, editors, and special guests. Only NR Plus members get the call in info. And these are really great conversations that you won't want to miss. There's also commenting. Only NR Plus members can comment on the site, which makes for a much more, and they put it in air quotes, which I'm not sure why, elevated commenting experience, to say the least. I mean, is the air thinner? Um, Yeah, that would make sense. That does happen. (laughs) And get this. When you join NR Plus and you are logged into the site, you will see up to 90% fewer ads on the site. In particular, you will see zero ads within articles. So when you're reading what you came to the site to read, your distractions will be minimized. There's also a lot more to the NR Plus program, but those are some of the key takeaways. So why not join today? It really is a terrific deal, and we have some great first-year pricing in place, so you'll want to act now. Here's what to do. Go to nationalreview.com plus. That's nationalreview.com plus. Don't go to nationalreview.com dingo because it won't take you there. It's nationalreview.com and there you can read about everything this membership has to offer, and then just click Join Now to see all your options. That's NR Plus, folks. Nationalreview.com/plus. I will tell you, a couple people in Phoenix told me that they have put Dingo in their middle name or on their street address in some way uh, when they're registering for stuff, and that's what I like to hear. Um, I also get way, way too many people asking about Jack, which I find a little uh, discomforting. But now that he's a podcast star, I guess I should get used to that. And um,
2: yeah, we're we're gonna get some all about Eve action in here. Can't wait. I have no response to that.
1: <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I think that's all I got. So thanks, everybody, for for tuning in. I, I promise we'll get off the uh, Skype thing for next time. And please keep the reviews coming. Please keep subscribing at wherever fine podcasts are subscribed to. Uh, thanks again to everybody who turned out. It really was a great crowd. Goldwater Institute does great stuff. And uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do about next week because I'm leaving town for a little bit. But we'll figure it out. And we have some exciting surprise episodes coming down the pike, which we'll just uh, leave it there for right now. But uh, there's some exciting stuff coming. And uh, until next time, I'll see you on the next episode of The
2: Remnant. No, you won't. This is a podcast.